Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, for a round two, we have the one and only Sarah Brazier from Gong. She's bringing us through a clinic from prospecting all the way through closing. Nick, why should people listen? Well, guys, I feel a little bit awkward here, but I forgot my microphone at home. And so if I sound funny, that's why. But Sarah puts on an amazing clinic. She's an AE who's been absolutely smoking it at Gong, and you're going to want to listen to this one. All right, guys, three, two, one. Bring your mic next time. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, Pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's prospecting tip is brought to you by Woodpecker. When you're sending a sales email, you generally want to avoid putting punctuation in the subject line. If you've got an exclamation point, it makes it seem like you're shouting at them. Look at this amazing offer. And a question mark just smells salesy. So avoid punctuation. Now, if you want to steal my full sales cadence from my friends at Woodpecker, there's a link in the show notes for you to go get it and try it for free. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. All right, Sarah, welcome back to the show. You hopefully remember that we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Number one is use an upfront contract in your negotiation. If you are sitting down with a prospect and they are saying, hey, we want to move forward, but we need to move forward 
in order for us to move forward, we need a discount. That's where you need to separate cash from value. And in that upfront contract, that's what you need to establish that today, before we can even jump into the numbers, we need to understand if you're not seeing Gong or whatever software you're selling as valuable, i.e. the price doesn't make sense for the return on the investment, or no, we totally think that this is a valuable add to our tech stack. We want to make this purchase. However, this is a problem of cash flow. So ask that question in your upfront contract. Make sure that's covered because when you walk down the cash flow question, that's where you can actually try to see what levers you can pull to make this work because they're invested. If it's a question of value, then you need to say, hey, you know, we can't continue this conversation. We've done a bad job of selling. Like, Let's talk about why you're not seeing value and where you're not seeing value. Beautiful. What's number two, Sarah? Yeah. Number two is when you multi-thread, you need to position toward that persona. So at Gong, we do a lot of proof of concepts. And that means that I am talking to end users, middle managers, CROs, VPs of sales, everybody in between. And a lot of times I'm talking to operations, all these different people who all get different value out of what I'm selling. So when I multi-thread, I need to run really good discovery and understand why would an end user benefit from using my solution versus why would sales operations benefit from my solution and then position accordingly. All right, round us out. What's number three? Uncover the unstated objection. So a lot of times when you initially run your discovery call, I'm work commercial sales, so our deals are pretty fast moving. You know, we're, we're closing a deal in like 30 to, you know, 60 days. And in my initial discovery call, I always want to ask how people buy software. When have you ever had a failed software project? If you just incorporate that line in your upfront contract, hey, at the end of this call, I also want to understand how you've made software purchases in the past. When you get to that point, you can ask the question, have you ever had a failed software project and why? Then you can make sure that you're uncovering any kind of objections so that they don't say, yeah, you know, implementation is a really big issue, so we're going to wait you know, until Q3 to make this purchase when you could have gotten that out on the table beforehand. All right. So let's go back to tip number one. There are two discrete outcomes from your upfront contract in a negotiation. One is there's not enough value. Two, there's a cash flow issue. And oftentimes when there's a cash flow issue, the first thing reps do is they say, let me go back to my boss and ask for a discount. But there are a lot of the other different levers that you can pull in that negotiation. So when it is a cash flow issue, what are some of the different cards that you have on the table that you can start to push and pull? Yeah. So I think you have to run a discovery around what the cash flow issue is, right? Is it a question of you literally not have enough money in the bank, but you'll have enough money in six months. So like, would push payments make sense? In order to push payments, that means I have to, I, I can't discount as much. So is it the upfront cost of the, the software itself, the price per seat, or is it you know a matter of timing? And basically, you need to have a list of all the different levers that you are allowed to pull. So you need to sit down with your manager or go through your guru or whatever, you know, Wikipedia of sales processes and pricing you have and say, here are the levers that I can pull. But the whole time it's a give get. So, you know, if I give you a discount, then I you need to commit to signing this contract by the end of this month or by the end of this week. If you don't, I won't be like that, that pricing won't be approved. Or if we push payments out, like, will you then be a referral for the next three deals that I closed if I need someone? as a customer referral, will you be willing to do that? So I think A, knowing that there's going to be friction and that friction is intentional and B, making somebody feel like they win 
you need to make them sacrifice a little bit. <laughs> you get these sales where they're stoked to buy gong and just rake you over coals on pricing. You quote them 40K, they come back with 10, or maybe they come back with 20. How do you know where to land? Do you try to split the difference? Do you just say like, no, there's no way? How do you know where you actually need to be in that negotiation? Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that's where we come back and say like, I'm confused. Like I tell people pricing in the first call. <laughs> so if we've gotten to the point where you're ready to make a purchase and you say that Gong is only worth half of what you're quoted for, you knew the price up front. Like I'm confused why you think that 50% off is what you need in order to get this deal done. Can you help me understand why you think that? Is that because you think that Gong is only worth $20,000? Why? Okay. Well, let's go back to our success criteria and our initial discovery call. Like you told me that you need to increase your close rates 5%. And based on the deal sizes that you're closing, that would have, you know, a $3 million impact. So can you help me understand where 50, like $20,000 investment is not worth a potential of 3 million ARR net added to your top line this year. Can you help me understand that? I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> it's just like, I, I just be like, what? <laughs> Sarah, what about when you get put in a situation where you're in a competitive deal and they say, oh, well, we're looking at somebody down the street and we like them too. And they're 8% cheaper. Can you beat that quote? How do you respond to something like that? This is also a talk track that we have, but like Gong is the the premium solution. It's the most expensive thing in the space. Like, yeah, sure. That competitor is 8% cheaper. It's slightly cheaper, but let's go back to the value again. Where do we differentiate? Where have customers switched over with the exact same problem that you have today? Who used a competitor because it was cheaper? Let me introduce you to some people who made that choice and six months into their contract had to leave. Like, do you want the risk of 8% off on this quote? to like have this potential delta in your ROI. The number one thing is that we don't, you don't want to get into a feature for feature battle because anyone can make their software on the surface look the same as yours. Like, especially in software, everything it's B2B software is super competitive. Things can look similar. So first, like put, put the features somewhere back here and let's talk about why are you evaluating in the first place? Like what's your evaluation criteria? Have you ever had a failed software project before? That can tell me like, yeah. And the re reason why it failed was because we actually had a terrible customer success manager. Well, let me talk to you about our 30, 60, 90 day plan for onboarding and how we support companies your size. And like, let me introduce you to your CSM. I need to understand what are your goals and objectives and demonstrate that I know those goals and objectives and that we have a plan in place to help you meet those goals. So say you're on the phone with Armand, he's the CRO. And like a common concern about Gong is like, oh, it's going to be big brother. I'm sure that's an objection you run into a lot from people. And you probably want to get ahead of that in your conversation with Armand. Like, what do you do? Do you just blurt out in the middle of the conversation? Hey, by the way, we're not big brother. Or are you doing it differently? Yeah, no, I think, I think, um, you know, it's like, so Armand, have you, have you talked to your reps about um, wanting to record calls? Have you had that conversation with them yet? Yeah, I've talked to them, you know, like the, I don't know, the SMB folks of the world, they're, they're okay with it. But I don't know, I've got like a 40 year enterprise closers closing million dollar deals. And you'd probably tell me to kick rocks if I wanted to record them. Yeah, totally. I, I hear that a lot. Do you know, like, 
have you broached the subject with him at all, or are you holding off until we actually like roll out this pilot? You know, it's, I haven't specifically brought it up with the context of gong, but there have been times where like, I've wanted to know, or even wanted to like share, like how he does what he does with like some of the younger folks on the team. And he like very much digs his heels and he's like, no, no, no. Like I have a process. And the way that I run this process is by making the customer feel comfortable without anybody watching. And that's sort of where it's ended in the past. And it's probably why we haven't been talking much up until this point. Yeah. But, you know, we're in agreement that it would be valuable to have visibility into his calls and his process today, correct? Yeah, sure. It's just the, I don't know, like, can I hide it? Can I just like put it away somewhere? I guess that's sort of illegal. So it's just like a touchy situation internally that I I don't know exactly how to manage it. Okay. So is it, just help me understand here. So is it a question of the rep doesn't want his calls recorded or the rep is concerned about the perception that that their prospect will have with call recording? It's definitely the latter. It's like what the prospect feels like when they see that red recording button right there that I'm seeing right now. And even I'm like a little bit nervous right now talking to you. Like, who knows? Like, there's probably some SDR watching this tape right now. I never know. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So like just for you to have in your back pocket, Gong is able to to understand, you know, who's opting in to calls being recorded versus not. So we can set up a consent page if that would be helpful. And 95% of calls customers opt into. You'd think it would be less, but actually call recording really isn't that big of a deal. But we can track that as part of the proof of concept and prove that out. Do you think that would help in subsiding some of the apprehension your rep has about recording calls? If you could track it and and prove to me that there's no difference, uh, whether with us or with other customers, I think, I don't know, then we can make the team eat their vegetables, I suppose. Okay, cool. Well, yeah, let's eat our vegetables then. Let's give it a go and see what happens. Does that sound fair? Cool. I love it. Well done. What you're doing though is is far more nuanced than just saying like, hey, have, your reps, have you talked about this? Yes, no. All right, next question. It's like, no, 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 you dug in for, I don't know, that was probably a two minute riff there where there are a million reasons why someone might not want to record a call, right? It might be because the rep doesn't want their reps watching them. It might be because the customer is uncomfortable. There are a variety of different things, confidential information, whatever it might be, right? And what you drilled it down to is one of those very, very, very specific reasons. And then what you did is you set up it similar to like success criteria to, hey, if we can disprove that, or if we can test this and prove that that isn't a concern anymore, are we good to go? And now what you've done is you've narrowed the scope of what you need to accomplish in the sales cycle versus just trying to bash your head and talk to every AE on this person's team and get them comfortable with it. Well, that kind of make, brings up the point of like, when you have a conversation with a VP of sales, it's probably really different than when you have a conversation with just like a lowly AE like me. So can you talk about the differences in how you tee up those conversations and and talk about your solution with a decision maker versus an end user? Number one is have my champion or whoever is sponsoring this project, this evaluation, set the tone before I say anything, because they, we need to be selling on the same side of the table. And they need to explain to their reps why they want to do this and what the benefit to the business is and what they think the benefit to the reps will be. Because like, that's the manager. Like They actually have a relationship. They have far more rapport than I could ever build in a month-long sales cycle. So let them help me sell. The second thing I do is I ask some questions about, you know, what are your challenges in selling today? Like, where do you guys find 
there are hiccups within your own sales process or areas where things get sticky. And then when we do the training, I train to where things get sticky based off of what people have shared with me on the call. And then the the CEO or the CRO is is running this proof of concept because they want to understand how their new messaging is resonating in the market. The sales reps don't really care. In fact, they might not even want to use the new messaging because they think it's dumb. They're really concerned about the fact that their sales engineers are giving incredibly generic demos all the time, and it's slowing down their sales cycle, and it's creating a ton of friction. So if the sales reps can share that's their problem with me, then I'm just going to sell them on that, solving that problem. And I'll sell the CRO on his messaging problem. And they're different. They probably actually are connected. I can see how those two things would connect. New messaging, crummy demos. There's like lots of ways that those things go together. But like how it's experienced um, based on your role is very different. So let's just talk about like the pains in your role and sell to that. So Sarah, as you're running these POCs, obviously you're working at different layers of the organization. I'm curious, are you trying to have these all in one conversation where you're calling out, hey, you SDR, what do you think? Hey, you sales manager, what do you think? Or how do you actually tactically multi-thread? So say this is a really, this is like a large account, you know, like I'm trying to sell to, I'm trying to sell like a hundred seat deal to customer success, sales development, and the account executive team. And those people, you know, those conversations touch revenue operations, sales operations, marketing, product, et cetera. Depending on what happened in with my, you know, my first discovery call, what problems are we trying to solve? Who should be involved? Typically you can get pretty wide and involve lots of people. And I think you want to be, you want to kind of be like wildfire where you're just spreading everywhere and everybody's talking about this solution, even if they're not actually actively participating in the proof of concept. So part of that looks like, you know, number one, I've got my stakeholders and I've figured out who my champion is. And I'm like talking to the champion and trying to understand all of the different personalities that I'm talking to and what they like and what they don't like. And then that champion is bringing in other stakeholders into the evaluation. So before that initial call where I have like, say, six stakeholders on a deal, and I'm literally like thinking about a deal I'm working right now. So I talked I talked to my champion and he's like, oh, I'm bringing these six stakeholders to this conversation. Well, I need to A, make sure everybody's voice is heard and at the table, but I also only have an hour to do that. So I reach out to every single one of those people beforehand and ask for like 15 minutes to introduce myself and understand like their top challenges. So I can try to like from those, you know, six different short discovery calls, be able to distill like what are the top priorities of the organization and demonstrate to that. Then we move into proof of concept where all of them, I'm setting up different like training calls to, to look at the data within Gong to interpret the data within Gong that's specific to their use case. And I customize the proof of concept to each of them. And then like on the trainings with the reps, that's where it's like a rep wide, like, hey, everybody chime in, tell me what your challenges are. Let's demonstrate to these main challenges that you're saying now and that I've heard from your managers based off of these other discovery calls. It's just a ton of conversations. And then if you're trying to loop in more people who you know, you haven't actually had a sit down conversation with like, 
taking it, taking time to update people on just what's happening with that proof of concept and not having a call to action or like, let's sit down and discuss, but just sending them information and giving them interesting data points and insight to digest. Like that also proves really helpful. My last question on the whole POC thing is because you're running such a heavily multi-threaded process, you've got SDR, you've got customer success, you've got the account executives, but then you also have SMB, mid-market and enterprise. Very, very rarely are all of those a complete slam dunk. And so while you're running your POC and you find like, okay, these three folks are like really, really solid, but this group over here is like, it might block my deal. How do you manage that without just trying to circumvent them and make sure that that one group doesn't blow up your deal? Yeah. So part of that is like when you're having that first conversation, you say like, how do you guys evaluate software? Who's involved in the decision-making process? Like, you need to know how that company evaluates and buys. Because I've run proof of concepts where they actually like didn't care what the reps thought. Like they just didn't care. And I've run proof of concepts where like if not every rep is, you know, a green, they're not going to buy. So you need to figure out what that looks like. And then my director of commercial, he talks about like you need to turn the red lights to yellow lights and the yellow lights to green. And you just got to keep the green glowing green. And so it's like identifying who's not bought in, why they're not bought in and having a conversation with them. And like, it's fine if they don't love the product, but if you can just get them to not verbally be like, we can't buy this and here's why. Or if you just get enough green lights, green and yellow lights to move forward based off of how that company makes purchasing decisions. That's how I think about it. So Sarah, this has been a, very insightful conversation about discovery. One of the things you put in the prep doc was some details about how you navigated an internal promotion at a world-class company like Gong. And I have to imagine that's kind of tough because I'm sure there's a lot of experienced salespeople who want to be AEs at Gong. And like you actually leveled up internally and you wrote out about some best practices and some tactical things you do you did to secure that promotion. And I'm wondering if you'd be generous enough to share those with the audience. Yeah, definitely. I think the first thing that if if you're an SDR and you you haven't closed, but you want to move into a closing role, the first thing that I would do is understand what the hiring process is like internally, because it is never just you crush your number, therefore you get to be an AE now. There's a bunch of other maybe political factors, business factors, you know, sometimes people need you to be an SDR longer because you're the top producer. So why would they promote you? Right. Or, you know, there isn't, there isn't a need to hire more account executives. We're fine. So you have to figure out what the business case is. So I really wanted to be an account executive. And so I went back through the Salesforce numbers and I looked at when an SDR was promoted to AE, how much did they close in their first two quarters versus when we hired externally. And there was a significant difference in um, ACV for internal promotions. So I built out around that business case, I built out a slide deck that I presented to my CRO about why it was in his best interest to move me into an account executive role. I also did things like ran the numbers on my conversion rates of sourced opportunity to closed one and compared that to the rest of the team. And I had, I had really good numbers in that direction. So I knew how to source leads that closed, not just source leads that led to meetings. And based off of previous promotions, 
I would be bringing in a significant amount amount more revenue into the company than if he hired externally. That was one of the things that I did. But I also didn't need to just get the CRO's approval and buy-in. I needed to loop in the hiring manager, the hiring manager's manager, and then I needed to figure out what were the requirements that I needed to, to meet in order to be promoted. And it wasn't just crush your number. It was like, you need to have a specific set of demonstrable skills that you can show us. So that's what I would do is I would, I think all of that, that those are all, that's basically a sales cycle, right? You're figuring out who your stakeholders are. You're figuring out who the decision maker is. You're building a business case and you're selling it. So Sarah, how did you even broach that topic? Because I remember when I was an SDR, like, I think I just went to my, my VP of sales and I was like, I want to get a promotion. I want to make more money. I want to go to the conference. And he was like, yeah, well, you've been doing this for five months, like slow your roll, buddy. So like, how did you approach the CRO to have that conversation in the first place? Yeah. So I had checked all of the main boxes around like hitting quota. I had not only hit my quota and been in seat for the required amount of time, but I'd exceeded quota exponentially. And I was like, Hey, like, when is this going to happen? And so I just put time on his calendar. Like I warmed him up a couple of times. I did some walk talks, got some coffee. It's like, you know, I really want to be an account executive. And I think that's the other thing is you need to make your, your, your goals and objectives really clear. And you need to make those goals and objectives really clear with your manager from the get go. Um, like there's no, it's no, I might want to be a CSM. I might want to be an AE or I might want to move to marketing. Um, once you know what you want to do, like come up with the plan and hold your managers to that plan and then, you know, build, build the case around that. Get as many people looped in as you need to get looped in. So there's no doubt like, oh, we, we've got a new role opening up for account executive. Who should we hire? Hmm. Like, no, 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 I've been raising my hand very aggressively for the past nine months. It's me. <laughs> so most orgs that I know, as folks are getting promoted from SDR to AE, they have to go through the mock disco ringer, which is what I usually find is the biggest holdup for folks because they're used to quick turn, two minute cold calls. But now when you actually have to multi-thread a deal, you need to hold a conversation for 30 minutes. They struggle a lot because they've been used to all of these micro interactions with prospects. So how do you prepare to have an actual sales call without really getting those out at-bats as an SDR? Yeah. So first of all, the first time I interviewed for account executive, I didn't get it. And my big mistake was that I practiced my mock discovery call with like 20 different people. And I had like 20 different people's opinions about what I did well and what I didn't do well. And I tried to make all of them happy in my interview. And so it just was like a beautiful train wreck of bad. So I was like, okay, where did I fail? First, I asked my the hiring manager where I failed and what, what he thought I didn't do great and what he thought was like, you know, passable. And I picked the areas that I really needed to improve, the, the red lights that needed to be turned at least to yellow and how can I make my yellow lights green. And then I did a couple things. Number one, I aligned myself with a manager who was on the committee for evaluating internal promotions. And I asked him if he would practice mock discovery calls with me um, on a regular basis. And so we had a standing meeting that was like every week for 45 minutes, we would practice this thing. And I didn't do the whole discovery call. I first focused on the areas that I was told sucked. So I was like, okay, great. 
my upfront contract isn't very good right now. How do we make that better? And I practice and practice and practice until that sounded good. And then I added the next layer of, okay, so now we've done the upfront contract. Let's move into innocuous questions or whatever the structure of your discovery call is. So I did that. And in conjunction with that, I built out what I called the active listening worksheet, where I basically asked, I asked them, what are the criteria? What pieces of this discovery call are you evaluating? And what are the criteria for the, that discovery call? What are you actually looking for and grading me on? Because if the answer is like, we just like, it needs to feel good, then like you guys need to figure out how to improve. But they knew they had, they had like a point system for their discovery call. So I took that and I made an active listening worksheet and I would listen to AE calls recordings of them. And I would fill out what they were doing. And I would grade them based off of that worksheet. And I would do like a really simple thing where I'd hit stop after the prospect spoke. And I would ask the next discovery question as per what I thought they should be saying or doing, and then hit play. And then like, just practice, like, even when you can't do a mock like this, you can practice with this person in the wild via recording. That's phenomenal. Sarah, we could continue this conversation forever, but we've only got three minutes left in our recording slot. So we're going to skip the final (laughs) question because I feel like you gave us all the great meat in the interview. So I'm just going to ask, is there anything you want to plug before we jump off here? Uh, SDR Nation. People should come check out SDR Nation. If you're an SDR who, like me, wants to become an account executive, you should come check us out. We have career coaches who spend time helping you plan out how you're going to run your promotion path like a sales cycle, help you practice your discovery calls. And we give tons of great tips and trainings on a weekly basis around like what are the trends that are working and what's not working in SDR Outreach. So come check out SDR Nation. Well, there you go. Go check out SDR Nation and stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto-reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Sarah Brazier include, number one, if somebody has budget issues, do not take those at face value. Try to understand, is it the total cost? Is it the timing of the payments? Are there payment terms that we could use? Do not just offer more and more and more discounts. You need to understand what part of the budget is not working. 
Number two, if you're in a competitive situation, stop going feature to feature. And that's much easier said than done because anyone in B2B can make their solution seem exactly the same at the surface level. Instead, you should be going all the way back to why they're evaluating in the first place. What is wrong with their situation today? And then go deep and wide with stories into that one bucket. Number three, you need to get ahead of potential objections by bringing them up before they're even mentioned. You know the weak spots of your solution. And so bring them up preemptively when you know the conversations are going in that direction so you don't seem like you're hiding things later on in the conversation. And then lastly, number four, when you're trying to get promoted as an SDR, you got to treat your promotion plan like a sales cycle. You got to multi-thread people. You got to figure out the buying process. You got to stitch together the cast of characters. Don't just show up and expect that you're going to get the promotion for free. All righty, Nick, how can people help us out here? Well, guys, one thing here today, I would love it if you subscribe to the newsletter. And if you're really bold and you've listened up until this point, I would love it if you shot me a message and said, hey, Armand's impression of you is absolutely the best in the world. He should just do your intro moving forward. I would really appreciate that, guys. Have a good day. show is brought to you by Exactly Forecasting, which is a flexible sales forecasting solution that uses AI and data to help you call an accurate sales forecast. Gartner says over half of sales leaders don't have high confidence in their forecast. One way we recommend to improve your forecast is to align as a team on explicit attributes that must be true in order to deem a deal forecastable. That way your forecast will get clearer and the team will know where to focus efforts. We put together a forecasting 101 guide with our friends at Exactly. Get it for free in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, Pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-minute masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes.